Before we start, here's a message from one of our friends. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show where people share their passions. Everyone is geek about something. I'm your super dummy Paul on a mission to learn from people's experiences. This is Era of Geek. If you're enjoying the show and have time, please do leave a review. It helps people to find us. You can do this on some podcast apps or on podchaser.com. In the meantime, let's hear from today's guest. Hey guys, how are you? First of all, Paul, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Please bear with me. My my radio persona voice is still developing as I'm just starting on my podcast. So my name is Ben. I'm originally from south of Russia. I came to New York when I was 14 in uh, back in 1996. Um, I finished uh, School of Visual Arts here in New York City with a degree in a traditional animation back in 2007. The very same year that Disney has shut down its traditional animation studios. You could quite imagine where that direction went. Uh, um, so I took my uh, degree in animation and, and pursued uh, graphic design, photography, you know, like studio photography, model photography, sort of, sort of like that. Currently working for 13 plus years managing a video game slash comic book store. Figures, all of that geek culture, kind of nerdiness stuff. Here also locally in New York City, pretty small Papa Mama shop called Bulletproof Comics. Uh, it used to be owned by this gentleman called uh, Henry Lee and his uh, brother-in-law. They had five stores around New York City. So very small, very tightly knit community. So that's pretty much my background. Uh, also worthy worthy throwing in there, huge, huge gamer. Unfortunately, we're doing audio only. You can't see all my collection of uh, Star Wars uh, novels that I enjoy reading. And behind the screen is like tons of video games, all the way from Game Boy Advance to PlayStation 5. So huge gamer as well. Obviously, before uh, immigrating to the U.S., uh, geek culture was very, very limiting, especially, you know, we'll, I'll encompass my personal experience in Russia. I can't speak what, what nerd culture was like in bigger cities like, you know, St. Petersburg, Moscow. I'm a, from a smaller town uh, south of Russia. It was a known uh, tourist attraction, but relatively small. So but things got to us late, right? Uh, I grew up during the last decade of Soviet Union when things were, began to get laxing. We started getting VHS uh, uh, Western cinema, obviously cheaply dubbed with like Russian single voice translation. Um, video games weren't even translated. No sorts of access to comic books. So all of that stuff, I was beginning to 
it's like the BC and AD, you know, before immigration and after immigration, after you come to New York City and you start just walking down the street and like checking out a local rental store or a comic shop. Like, oh, what is this? You, you kind of, you do have a concept of it. But for me, it was just like a, a Pandora's box, you know, out of nowhere into this, a whole world of video games, comic books. What is Comic-Con? What is cosplay, right? Until quite recently, it was just like a, this very niche kind of thing that turned into this global phenomenon. So I was also kind of, kind of like blindfolded until I was 14, 15 years old, and then just went right into it. Um, well, we will, of course, touch more on that. But also you have your, your YouTube channel as well. Um, right. Tell, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. How did that all start? Blogging time. So, um, unfortunately, we're, we're living in a very strange and di different world, right? When this COVID and uh, pandemic and stuff like this. And, you know, I was uh, left my job. They kind of had to shut down. They kind of like limited their resources. And I said, ah, I can't do this. As a creative person, you got to channel your creativity somewhere. Otherwise, you're going to start stagnating. And my, my brother and I, we kind of ventured forth into YouTube about four or five years ago trying to do our gaming channel. But because our tastes in gaming and uh, uh, the way that we play are quite different, I'm a very moody person. He's very strict and methodical. That didn't go far. So when pandemic started uh, a year ago, a year and two months ago, I told myself, um, I want to do a YouTube channel. I want to channel all that creativity. My, what is the topic that I will never stop talking about? It's, it's part of my DNA. It's, it's daily there with me. And my younger brother goes like, uh, duh, Star Wars. Is that even a question? Like, you have to think about this. You got to make a Star Wars channel. And the second part of it was, I'll bring up the name just in a second, but the second aspect of it was, you know, living in this, I'm 40 years old, right? I was born in 1981. So I pretty much grew up with the genesis of the internet as we know it, the public access internet. And seeing the evolution of just human behavior from face to face, like, hey, Paul, how are you doing? You shake hands like you want to grab some beers, mate? Let's go to a bar to this digital space where people don't see a faceless form of communication. It is so much negativity was running around in the Star Wars community, you know, the so-called quote unquote fandom menace who tries to antagonize people and make these angry YouTube videos. And it just didn't feel genuine to me. I'm not saying that you know those those places channels don't have the room to exist. Obviously, if there is a slew of fans who want to support that kind of stuff, by all means, do what you gotta do. I just don't believe that. I think you create a real community by centering around things that you love. You can criticize things. You can say like, "Hey, I just like this here. I think the script could have been better here. I think George Lucas should have listened to a little bit of criticism." Blah 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 blah. But you can do it constructively. So, Star Wars timeline, my YouTube channel, boom, I. Push it there. The reason I call it Star Wars Timeline is because I started reading Star Wars novels, right? The Expanded Universe, which branches off from the films and kind of expands that universe during George Lucas's time. Now, after Disney's uh, acquisition, it turned it to something entirely else. But the idea was in late 90s, I wanted to find out the biggest answer to your question is what the heck happens to Luke, Han, and Leia after episode six? We didn't know prequels are coming. We didn't know any more Star Wars at all is coming, right? And the way I started reading them was the chronological order. Timeline. I started opening up those, you know, soft cover books and checking out what, what book precedes what. What's I want to know exactly what happens at episode after episode six. Thus the timeline. Created my YouTube channel to start doing exclusively book reviews. And it sort of grew from there. And I said, okay, hold on a second. How do I branch out and, and 
you know, make myself more noticeable. I go to YouTube, to from YouTube to Facebook, and I see the same thing going on in the communities. There's some Facebook groups which are wonderful. Others just people like blah, 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 just yapping about it, not and just being insulting. I said, that's not a kind of environment I want to be a part of. I want to create a Facebook group where people come in and can speak openly with, without just being venomous. You know, same thing, facebook.com slash groups slash Star Wars timeline. That's what I created. Uh definitely appreciate you for self-plugging my my stuff in here. But that's honestly that was the impulse. That was the push for I didn't even know if if, if five or ten people would like watch my videos I'll, I'll go to my Facebook group. I I anticipated none of it. I just wanted to be a part of a community where real Star Wars fans have like a mature tone conversation, whether we agree or disagree. Yeah, there's not enough of that at the minute especially now um, in the last year or two. It seems to have got particularly bad um, for whatever reason. Yeah. People have, you know, I I feel partially it's, you know, people are uh, expressing their frustration. Sometimes, you know, when people come and say the meanest thing on your YouTube video or on your comment on uh, a Facebook group, if you don't retaliate and react re- impulsively, but try to talk down to people, like I mean, like talk them down out of the you know this argument, most people become more benevolent. They're like, hey, hey, look, I, I came off the wrong foot. I know nothing about you as a person. Let, let's start this over. Most, and there's this just a, a a small group of people where just I don't know what it is. I'm not there to judge to psychically like analyze them, but people just are living their all box and they're unwilling to come out of it and if you disagree with me i obviously know more than you do paul and if you disagree with me you're just a bad person because you don't understand or you're ignorant or or 15 other reasons and that's that's just not the common ground to come up i see it everywhere in like marvel dc comic books like action movies netflix if i have a favorite show god forbid you disagree with me man yeah, your your channel. I had um, a bit of a look through it, and there's quite a good mix of stuff in there. Because as someone who, as I say, um, I've mostly watched the movies, but not really anything else. Um, you haven't targeted it at people who I'm going to give a shout out here to Mike, um, who is a bit of a running joke. If we say to Mike that something in Star Wars doesn't make sense, he will come up with some sort of obscure comic somewhere to say actually it does it made sense in this way um but to look at your channel you don't need to be mike like i could look at it and I, there's a lot in there that i could learn you've got it very well set up that the information is bite sized it's easy to understand and you go in depth but not so much that it's overwhelming yeah, you know, I didn't want to be an encyclopedia, and I don't propose that I know anything more than anyone else. I mean, I've been—I grew up with it since I was a kid back in Russia. You know, my father bought them the original trilogy on DHS tapes, and since 1987, it's just a part of me. And even though I've I've digested so many Star Wars uh, Legends books and comic books, pretty much read most of the the the. Uh, legends era dc dark horse era comic books there's still so much i learn every single day like uh don't come to me for like authoritative kind of like the final word on what what's what and star wars comics it's infinite and you know what honestly i'm the sort of person 
I suspect many creative people are this way where most of the stuff that I enjoy in terms of information, in terms of uh, uh, cataloging that information, like dates, names, events, it all exists on this periphery. And whenever I need to zoom in, focus on something like a certain period, like Clone Wars era or the Jedi of old, what are their names? Then like, I don't keep it all in my head and my memory because it's, it's 20 years worth of content of reading. It's huge, right? So when, when I need to conversate with somebody on something, I, w- I would kind of like home and it's like, hey, I remember reading this particular trilogy in early 2000s and it dealt with these kind of events. I remember the characters. Let me refresh my memory, come back to pull it in from the periphery centralize on it focus on that particular point and say ah i know what i'm talking about but never sitting next to these guys like you know star wars theory and star wars explained these guys are like like encyclopedias i'm sure there are aspects of it that i know better than them and vice versa but it's never the point of of an adult conversation to have this measuring stick like, i am the all-knowing resource of stars dude i just want to talk to you here's a russian guy who le- learned english and is uh, speaking with a from london from 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 a londonite right and we're talking about geek culture that's what it's all about just having a fun chat and if if i hear something of mike saying you know i kind of i kind of love uh, uh uh prequels like really let's hear it let's find out <laughs> It's it's information sharing, but it's just entertainment. It's fun. Mm. Like, hey, I think this character is dope. Here's a few cliff notes <laughs> why I think this character is dope. You should check him out. Why? Explain to me. Leave. You know, I I saw, sort of you begin to pick up on this language that you hear on YouTube. Hey, if you like my content, subscribe and follow. Hit that bell button or leave a comments down below. I sort of do that, but I'm realizing that what's gonna turn a person's ear to you it it's not this level of professional youtube professionalism it's like it's ju- just being genuine just kicking it and when i say like hey i want to find out what you think drop a comment below it's that sense of a community global community right that pop culture brings us all together into the fold where let's say you watched my video and and there is no way for you to respond like we are having right now even though you're recording voice only these two people i see your face I have an idea what you look like. I, I get visual cues when the person is smiling or the person is like pissed off or something because viewers on YouTube don't have that access to communication. At the very least, responding to a comment brings them a little bit closer to me. Obviously, when I grow, when I get my 25 million followers, you know, you won't obviously be able to do it with people. But just being able to do it on any level lets you know that, hey, I know this amount of Star Wars I'm pretty sure you do too. And your opinion values as much as mine. Let's let's talk about it together. A sense of community. I'm the host. I'm the one who is in front of the camera. I'm talking. But I want, you know, it's like in music when you go to a music concert. So a huge uh, Iron Maiden fan here. Obviously the whole uh, new wave British heavy metal, but uh, grew up with it since Russia. Yeah, but Iron Maiden is my team. Uh, when you go to their concerts with, with Bruce Dickinson, right, the frontman of the band, what he's able to do is... In music, the call and response, right? You call out to the audience, whether it's like shout, shout, scream, or sing a verse from the song, or or he wants you to rise, he wants you to clap. He controls, every time he's in Madison Square Garden here in New York City, he controls the crowd like this was his fist. That's the, that's the concept here, call and response. You want to create a video, like you said, Paul, very, very eloquently expressed that is just digestible enough amount of information and then you want reciprocity you want people to answer back 
yeah, I think you, you've got a good balance um, because it, it's bite size. As you say, you can you're responsive enough that people can get in contact or they can just absorb the knowledge. Um, so outside of that, I try and get an idea who people are outside of their sort of their geeky interests as well. So I'm curious how you would, how if someone were to ask you to describe yourself outside of your geeky interests, how you would do so? Right. Or is there you outside of this sort of stuff? Pretty sure there's uh, somewhere a part of me that's outside of the 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 nerd culture. Uh, when you manage a comic book store like for 13 years, you are comics, you are figurines, and you are video games because you just got to know your stuff like this, right? To, to to sell the product. But outside of it, very moody, very eccentric, uh, very opinionated, highly opinionated dude. And I, uh, you know, as you grow older, you become kind of. Uh, more introspective and you learn to modulate with your thoughts and opinions. I doesn't always succeed. I had this really crazy episode without, you know, it's 25 years where I fluently speak English, which I never thought I could. I never imagined I would live outside of my homeland if somebody said it to me when I was like 13 or 12. But, um, you know, you grow older, you become more uh, introspective. You try to take, begin to understand and unravel this little ball and like who you are as a person. Um, I'm artistically inclined. I can't call myself an artist because artist is a state of mind where you constantly need to communicate and create. I'm not that. I'm too lazy. I'm a lazy person too, <laughs> for sure. Very moody, very lazy. If if I have these periods where I, I like, I, I make excuses. I, I I leave things for tomorrow, for the next week. I'll do it later. But when I go into full gears into something like this YouTube channel, now I I do a hundred percent. I go in, I'm very passionate about it, I'm very aggressive about it. And I think one of the qualities that I like to cultivate in myself is as you become more and more of a self-assertive person, it's a never it's always a, a work in progress. You will evolve and change and grow if you let yourself until the day that you are gone. You're no longer here. And it's just that opportunity of, of, of looking back at yourself and allowing for more information to flow and to grow and being able to hear all perspectives is what, what makes up you. That's who you are. I, I don't believe, like, for example, you know, all these world events that are surrounding us this past two days and, you know, people see the little Russian flag on my, you know, Twitter account next to my American flag. And I'm expect there'll be like a torrent of their, oh, where do you stand on this side of the issue, on that side of the issue? Are you more of a conservative? Are you a Democrat? Like, I'm neither of these things. Like, I don't box myself in in any one into those. I don't categorize myself. I have a Russian Jewish descent with my ancestors coming from uh, Iran and Iraq 3,000 years ago. Like, all of human history is so checkered and, and layered. And that's what that's what we all are as people, nuanced, right? That's that's what I the way I would describe myself. Not as part of these clearly identifiable cultural pillars. I'm on the left. I support this. I support that's nonsense. It's like life is infinitely more complicated than that. But it is true that you say, um, because you made a comment there about um sort of fighting your way through to the challenges and and adapting and changing yourself as you say you kind of came over doing something that immediately kind of died off you kind of set yourself on a road of being this particular artistic person that you were going to follow this down and then 
it kind of fizzled away in front of you? So the way that I got into um, School of Visual Arts, right? I'm I'm 18 years old. I'm finishing high school here in the in the states. Uh, I did eight grades in Russia, and then right then I traveled here. And we have just no ties here, no support, no family members or friends to kind of like try to help you navigate the culture or the, just your social environment. So I'm like, oh, I want to go to this art school. I want to go to art, that art school. I knew I wanted to do something art related. Obviously, the entire world has grown on. on on the Disney movies, animated films of the classics. And I saw this school and I said, I want to go and study animation. I don't know why. And when I went for my interview, my parents were not around there with me. I went by myself. And this uh, lady, she saw my little notebook doodles there and she laughed and she said, like, kid, do you understand what school this is? School of Visual Arts is one of the most reputable East Coast schools in the United States. It's not easy to get here. These are doodles. Like you're, she was politely letting me know like you're, and she was kind of smirking and smiling. I got so pissed. I picked up my notebooks and just on principle, I told her, lady, expect me in the school next year. So I went, I went, I started community college. I had one of the professors who kind of taught in both schools. She helped me prepare um, a portfolio. And I went to school of visual arts based on principle. <laughs> right <laughs> because when you graduate when you start it's like it's i'm still am haunted by the question like what do i want to do with my life hmm. and when you're a, a, a 20 year old it's, the question is compounded like loads of more questions right um so i finished uh, uh with animation and i realized during my last year that my heart is not really in it it's literally manual labor and if you don't have love for that profession you're not going to succeed in it um, I was huge gamer all my life. And I took one year of my schooling. I took a, a class in Maya 3D modeling. I'm like, oh, snap it, man. I snapped my fingers. That's what I should have pursued. I, I could spend hours at the computer, you know, producing these 3D models. But it was it was not meant to be. I'm like, okay, wait, just pe- pick up a, a set of skills that you learned in your school. Understanding of composition, working with Photoshop, Adobe Tools. I took a class in photography before this school of visual arts in my community college. So you kind of like piece together everything that you know, and you just started off with this as a freelancer. As competitive as New York workspace is for like uh, graphic designers, just started from scratch. I'm still struggling there because that career-wise, that I'm not nearly where I want to be. But it's just that kind of space, and it partially also YouTube. Like, hey, if can you put your bets on that? Like creativity-wise or or career-wise, it's you see people who don't seem to have a full grasp of what they're talking about have like hundreds of thousands of followers. Like maybe it sounds a little bit arrogant, but you think to yourself, uh, "I think I could do a little bit better." Except the difference is they are already doing it, and here you are thinking and contemplating about it. how about you get off your butt <laughs> and start doing it and see where it takes you. And and honestly. Time and again, you're proven right that the people who cast all of all of their chips and, and gamble hard are the ones who win. It's people who don't uh, ask questions whether I will succeed or not. They just freaking do it, man. And after they do it, those are the people. Because every job that you go to, every resume that you submit, they don't want the best. They don't want the people who are the most talented, the most intelligent. They want people who are competent. They want people who can be there on to show up on time and just do the work. 
that is value. And we all, as especially artists, I find, like my peer of, of, of friends, is like you're so afraid of critique, of, that somebody's not going to like your stuff. Or what if they don't accept my resume? And you're like, again, it compounds you. But once you like experience failure time, time, and time again, like I have, you just do it. You go for it. It doesn't have to be in your professional realm of skills that you were preparing for. Like it's again, we talked about life in general. Now we're kind of like talking about more focused things, but your professional career sort of reflects your life. It's it's there's not one single avenue where you you see yourself you want to go. Sometimes you just got to change lanes. Yeah. Yeah, it's <clears> interesting <throat> because you you've sort of you've picked up things that you have interested you but it doesn't seem like they've really grabbed you in the right way. Like you enjoy right. them, but you couldn't like, I don't know, you can dedicate your mind to it 24 seven. Like, as you say, if, if you're going to do something like that, you need to really throw yourself all into it. Yeah. Otherwise it's going to break your back. If, if you're not enjoying something, you become miserable. If you're miserable and you're trying to do the work, it's going to seep through you, the pores of your work and shell. Like you could tell, instantly when people are faking it like on youtube in the star wars community you know where people who call themselves fans and post all these like star wars banners on the youtube channel and all they talk is there's just non-stop garbage and there's just like or anger porn or they just want to push your button to elicit a negative explosive reaction out of you like that's not fandom that's not what you're doing one day you will be miserable for what you're doing personally I can't imagine anyone centered around all these negativity extract something positive for themselves out of it. It's just got to hit you at one point. It's like, you know, you're going to wake up and say, okay, I said for the last 20 years making this kind of content. And once the controversy is over, you exhaust yourself of any topics to talk about. And the big question comes like, so what the bleep was I doing with my life up to this point? I've, I've, supplied nothing to this community nothing positive to talk about nobody will remember you or your opinion on something because all that you were practicing is clickbait it's funny it's a subject that's come up in the last few conversations i've had with people so i think it is on people's minds fandom particularly in the geek culture has reached this weird peak of there are so many people that are interested which is good but also it's right. brought on so many negative aspects like the people who just want the clickbait and they they fuel all the arguments yeah i totally agree with you and you know i've managed that comic book store and you have fans come in you have dc versus marvel fans it's like the first culture shock to me was when i traveled to the u.s was the way that people perceived cinema right cinema is a huge chunk of what we're talking about the geek culture and I just, I could never understand. Yeah, in, in Russia, all Russian kids grew up with Sly, with Schwarzenegger, with Steven Seagal, Chuck Norris, Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee. We all had our childhood role models. But what I didn't understand when I came here was the actor worship, idolizing the actors, the red carpets, the, the Oscars. Granted, all, all, all Russians know what Oscars are, that people are not ignorant. It's just, it wasn't part of the culture to worship people and put them on the pedestal as these celebrities, these major contributors to, to the society just because they star in a movie, just because they have a talent for acting. Because Soviet cinema has evolved complete in a completely opposite direction than Hollywood cinema. I'm not, I'm not comparing. I'm not saying which one is better, just polar opposites. 
American cinema has always been historically a grand spectacle. It's something that people would do on the weekend and take their wife and take their hands and children and go and enjoy this entertainment on the big screen and then conversate about it with their peers, with their friends over the evening, over the radio, right? Um, Soviet-era filmmaking was entirely different because it was sponsored by the government, because it was partially censored. You would, A, had no difficulty getting the budget for your film. And B, it, it was a much more of a exercise in artistic expression, granted with coupled with propaganda, but still it's an artistic form and an artistic expression first. It, it didn't concern itself with uh, revenues, how popular is this actor? How popular is that? Granted, once again, of course, we did have our renowned actors during Soviet, Soviet and post-Soviet era, but the culture approached it from a whole different angle. It was very much because of World War II, because of the, the way that Nazi Germany was exploiting cinema as a propaganda tool, the way that Britain was using cinema, the way that Soviet Union was using cinema. It, it became part of like social aware consciousness. And it sits there right next with your culture as an form of expression, as an artistic form. It's not about seeing a picture and, and then coming home in the 60s and, and gossiping. I was like, oh, did you hear how, how much money the blockbuster that this movie made? Or did you hear that this actor from this movie is going to be in that one? Are they going to be together? How are these two stars going to be on screen? Do you think they're going to have chemistry? None of that. It's a completely different approach. So for me, it was a huge culture shock being able to come to the States and then seeing the older films that I grew up with, like Predator, Terminator, Robocop, and then seeing it from a completely different perspective. Here, it's like, I don't know even how to describe it. It's like there's this, this, this the altar of, of, of cinematic heroes. Hmm. Yeah, because my understanding of the, the Soviet area cin cinema is more, it's um how to pick up the nation and how to get the nation behind certain ideals it's not about putting a person front and foremost the the film isn't so much about the people that you're seeing it's about almost trying to reflect the world around you and trying to build everyone up along is that would that be yeah. accurate or yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit more complex, and I'm sure I'm not representing it 100% the way it is beyond. I mean, I'm not a film critic, but just to, to level the field a little bit, yes, we had, there was favoritism always. There were actors which were more good-looking than others. So Russian Soviet film directors would pick them, or particular texture of the voice, or particular characteristics that uh, there's one famous, famous Russian uh, um Film, military film noir. It's called 17 Moments of Spring, uh, directed by this uh, female Russian filmmaker based on the books. of the, uh, And um, she specifically chose this Russian actor because she said, I want a very specific look. I want a very specific way that the person expresses themselves and talks. I want that intelligent look. And she was so specific about it. And that's also reflective of even in, you know, people are... Generally, when they hear a concept which they're not familiar with, they tend to simplify. And it's, it is not to say that people are simple. It's just because lack of information. So people would, would assume that because Soviet Union had a very clear communist and social regime and 
current course that the people would just like just flatline all on the same level, even when it comes to films. It wasn't. It's very, very intricate, very diverse. Uh, I would argue that the best Russian cinema was made during Soviet era, post-Soviet era cinema just went down from artistic standpoint. And partially it was because when you limit an artist with censorship, when you limit a game designer with a console, whether it's like Nintendo 64 or something, they thrive in that environment because they know how to substitute the rest with the imagination, with their genius. That was the case with Russian Soviet cinema where these film directors knew how to circumnavigate the censorship and create some of the most brilliant, detailed, nuanced moments in dialogue and comedic things which satirized the very government that they live in, that that condemned the censorship that is allowing these movies to sit through because it was so deeply layered and like you had to listen and look for it. And we, my generation, we grew up in the 80s when things got a little bit, a lot more relaxed, we would look at these movies and we would say, how in the heck were these movies passing rubs like Soviet censorship? I don't understand. It is so clever. And it's, oh man, uh, my great uncle, who unfortunately I didn't get the chance to meet, he was a Russian Soviet era actor. Um, and he starred mostly in the smaller roles. He had a couple of bigger roles. But he said, if you look at those movies, that was the golden gem. You would see an actor who performed a small role, but because his lines were written so powerfully and these people knew what they were doing, they're timeless. They were able to escape that very box that they were put in. On the other hand, it's, you would think that once again, it's, it was limiting and it's, we were only preoccupied with our borders and what happens within our borders. It was actually in reverse. I, I felt that Russian school gave me a very, very wide scope of the, of the world history, including British history, European history, World War II history, ancient history, medieval history. And when you look at cinema, the Soviet films, they have screen-adapted so many world classics. I was uh, chatting with Mike the other day, and I was telling him that the best Sherlock Holmes movies are made in Russia. The British Film Academy of Films has dominated that. There was like a whole forum of Sherlock Holmes films collected from around the world. Russian one stands as the pedestal top. And other, Robinson Crusoe, The Treasure Island, all of these English classics, English language classics that were so faithfully adapted to screen I, I was hard-pressed to look at America's... And, and you know, fans are free to challenge me on that, of course. I've seen the American films. I've seen the European films. I look at your guys, the, the British Sherlock Holmes, it just doesn't feel... You know what it doesn't feel? It's not because it's what I remember. It's not nostalgia. It's just based on that Conan Doyle archetype that is created in the book. Like, I flipped through the book. I'm, I, I can't claim that I read a lot of those stories, right? Short stories that were compiled into... Uh, uh, anthologies, but it's just so much more. And I look at the British one. I believe wasn't Peter Cushing yeah. in one of them as Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah. And I just uh, maybe it's my my you know Star Wars glasses. I looked at him. Uh, I see Governor <laughs> Tarkin. <laughs> I don't see Sherlock Holmes a lot. You know. Yeah, I mean, maybe that is the problem. Maybe because the the cinema over here is more is a lot more about putting up the actor. Then right. yeah, you you kind of, sometimes you look at them and you think that's no that you're wrong character you're playing the wrong character here, and it, it jars you slightly. Whereas if you're looking at it just for 
you know the focus is the cinema the cinematography the music it's not about the person it it isn't as jarring well if you don't mind my asking i do have a question for you how is because um growing up in russia and also here in the states uh we are all huge fans of british cinema the british uh tv shows british my parents love Downton abbey that's like their top top show it's like is the next season out i'm like dad it's over like is it going to be another season I'm like no it's done <laughs> that's how much they love it I, I i'm curious about you like how do you feel how do you stack the british cinema in comparison to like the soviet obviously the huge japanese uh, uh film space and you know the hollywood how is it different how would you like categorize it it's funny we always look at ourselves as kind of the scrappy underdog where mm. I don't know, maybe it's just we always like to put ourselves down, but we look at our own TV and cinema and we kind of go, um, yeah, it's good, but if only it had the budget of an American TV show. <laughs> We're mm. always like looking at it that way. We we have really good storytelling, I think, and maybe that is going back to part of it, that you have limit, more limitations. Uh, an right. American TV show, if it's popular, the budget just goes to ridiculous levels. Right things that you just couldn't afford over here. So you have to tell the story in different ways. And maybe it's along the similar lines. You can push it further that way. But I think, yeah, we I think we always kind of look at ourselves as trying to match American cinema and TV, but never quite reaching it. But that just could be the British way because we're always trying to put ourselves down. And I think that's a symptom that pervades most of like uh, world cinema. Everybody looks at Hollywood. By the way, for some reason, not many folks know that Bollywood and the Chinese cinema, the Hong Kong cinema, are just as influential as Hollywood in other parts of the world. Oh yeah, and uh, right, and and when you look at Hollywood, most of, of fans that I talk to, like they they try to compare the films that they love from their home places to Hollywood like oh it's not as big it doesn't have the the matrix kind of like budget or the you know the avatar the CGI effects and stuff like that you're right yeah yeah I guess it's the they have the money they have the marketing and yeah. so it always feels like that's what you should be sort of aiming for mm. like the the big loud person in the room who's like really you know, he's got the people around him because he's loud and obnoxious and the big personality. And you kind of think, oh, I want to be that guy. But then if you are sort of one-on-one -on -one yes. in a room, people might actually gravitate towards you because you have more smarts, you have more this, that, and the other. But yeah, in that environment, you always want to be the, the loudest person in the room because they have the biggest crowd around them. Yeah, I think that's a characteristic of um, the the beautiful aspect of of the heart of the american land is is that larger than life persona you know the 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 height of of post world war 2 the the boomers age right the golden age where people come and industrially americans just kicking ass and and we are the doers we can do we stand behind these good good principles and the god is with us right just focusing on the on the good pillars on the things the ideals that we can all aspire to no matter what language you speak or what country you come from i think that that is also reflective of of, of uh, hollywood cinema we want to be larger than life yeah i think that's very true i'm curious then because 
You say your dad had a copy of Star Wars on VHS. How was it reacted to in Russia when you look at the Soviet era cinema and then you said after that it kind of got, I don't know, weird maybe as a way to describe it. And then this comes forward. How did people react in Russia? Okay, so I'll give you two versions. I'll give you the localized version, right? What I've seen with my own two eyes and then kind of how I'm now living in America, excavating the past a little bit and how what I'm slowly learning, how it was viewed in Russia. So I moved, I was born in Moldova. It's a former Russian Republic uh, uh, that was uh, on the border with uh, um, Romania. It's basically Russian Soviet Union part of Romania. So when I immigrated to another part of Russia, to, to the south, 1987, my dad goes out and he buys the first DHS player, which was expensive. It was hard to get. You had to go to a salon to rent space, like sit down and watch a Western film. We had one in the house. And my dad comes off work one day. He's like, hey, hey, boys, boys. He gathers me and my brother. He's like, I brought, I brought something. It's a trilogy of films. It's like science fiction and like in like Greek fantasy because all Russian kids because we are very close borderline with uh, Greek culture the Greek mythology is pretty much like a uh, um, required reading in school like every kid Russian kid knows yeah, Greek mythology so it's like it's like fantasy like you gotta you gotta watch this and he's like a 20 plus year old he's a big nerd himself of like science fiction and everything he read a lot when he was young so we saw these three movies with these single voiced over Russian dubbing. They're not even like licensed tapes because we didn't have access to licensed tape. They're all pirated. They're all like signed by somebody's hand and you would go and buy them on the market. Oh, what a tape is this? What movie is this? You go by hearsay. You go by what people say. And that's how you, you check out stuff. That's how we saw Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Robot, Term, all of these movies, right? Breakfast Club. That's how you learn about American culture. Somebody tells you it's a good movie, you pop it into your VHS player and that's what you learn. All those closets, all those, you know, football team bullies that, you know, tried to beat on the good guy. That's what you learn. Um, and my dad goes like, I, I already started work with my boys. I think you guys are going to like it. In the moment, I only remember the first moment. I don't remember my reaction to any different parts of it. I just remember this one thing as Star Wars was always one picture for me because we saw it in one swing, all three movies. And I just remember this huge piece going through the screen, the opening shot of A New Hope, Episode 4. And the next thing, like, I'm confused. There were a lot of details I couldn't pick up because I was young. I was six or seven years old. But then this door jams open, and this dark, menacing figure steps into the screen. I'm like, what is this? Gazillion questions. I think to this day, this is what I think defines a good story whether it's cinema or it's written text, a short story, when it ignites your imagination to a point where you want to understand the story behind the, the outside of the uh, confines of the screen or outside the confines of the pages, like the story's over, but you still want to learn more. Same here. That's what Star Wars was to me. My world was never the same again. I was like, Whoa, what is this? It's just the idea on trying to pick up everything that is happening and trying to figure out what is happening outside? Now the movie's over. Why are there episodes four, five, and six? We had rumors at one point that there are 22 episodes and Russia only got three of them. Like, where's the rest? <laughs> where's the rest of the story? So that's the localized uh, uh, experience, my experience. And then, of course, we invited all the kids from the block 
we're very multicultural kind of like small town armenians georgians russians jews everybody door to door people did not give a shit and people just like one tightly knit community uh, we invited all of the kids from my school just to sit down and watch it in our living room uh, together that was the localized version then i came to the states and i saw how it was a global phenomenon here and i went back and i said well hold on a second then it was a global phenomenon in the states and europe how did soviet how, how like generation before my father like when he was super young how did they experience star wars so don't quote me on this but two things i learned that george lucas was on par with uh, akira kurosawa he was actually inspired by russian soviet era filmmakers eisenstein uh, a, a russian director who during 30s traveled to hollywood to pick up on the latest techniques of filmmaking, because right, if the French invented the camera, it was the Russians who invented the acting before screen, in front of the screen, the Stanislavski's method. And Eisenstein was the guy who traveled from Soviet, one of the few people who was allowed to travel to Hollywood, to pick up on the latest techniques of filmmaking and bring that to Russia. And he developed this visual language, which is studied to this day. George Lucas was a fan of his. Uh, there's a famous movie that he made uh, in 30s, which I saw as a kid in Russia, and I never connected to Star Wars. It's called Alexander Nevsky, and it's about this historical Russian knight, this hero, the people that we call Bagatir, who uh, uh, fights the Teutonic Knights. Famous, famous battle. And George Lucas saw those Teutonic Knights in this black, dark armor. And he saw a figure in cape who looks like this. There's actually articles you could Google. And George Lucas took some of these visual cues and he put it in his film. So that was one area where world cinema kind of like interacts with one another, just like music does globally. Same with cinema. And another uh, aspect of it that I learned, that the original 1977 film was actually uh, uh, had a limited the theatrical release in Soviet Union. It didn't have a lot of it. It was very limited, but they were saying like, oh, it's just this Western cinema. Don't let it influence our kids too much. We don't know what's the whole jazz with that in space fighting for freedom kind of stuff. Just a little bit, show it a little. But we had a whole underground culture of salons. First VHS players, makeshift rental spots where people would put together different television sets and different small little like, cabins. And you would rent the place to go and put your favorite VHS tape and experience that cinema. And another part of culture was there were two or three different excellently speak, like English-speaking Russians who would translate all of these Western illegal movies for Russian elite. For Russian politicians who would see them like in, in, the, in their closed little bunkers, they would sit in their rooms and like, hmm, we don't kind of allow it like socially, but let's check out this, what's this Indiana Jones thing? And they would sit and the translator would sit in the next booth and translate it synchronously. Wow. Seeing the movie for the very first time and translating on the go, he said sometimes they would put glasses like this to obscure their voice and like put like something over their nose to sound a little bit different so people don't recognize them in public. So another part of the uh, question is the answer to that is that Soviets always loved and embraced and experienced Star Wars, but in a very, very different way. It, it was inescapable. Like all art, it seeps through the pores of, of global consciousness. And regardless what, what society you live in, if it's great, people are going to accept it. People are resourceful. 
they want to be in on the new thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so was that your sort of first experience into into geek culture? Um, I would say that and video games. Video games. So uh, remember, I discussed the makeshift rental spots, where we uh, we did have like Soviet era arcade machines, so, like the physical ones with like physical props where you push the buttons and lights light up, kind of like different ones. One of the most popular ones were the torpedo, where the the warship goes by like a small little model. What do you call it? Uh, I'm sure it has like different names: torpedo, or war games, or sink the ship, something like that. Regardless, whatever it was called, we had arcade machines like this. But once kids started experiencing electronic games, it was a whole different ball game. And the way that I was exposed, we had this spot in the center of the city that you used to go to every Saturday and Sunday to trade things. Like my father used to take me there. Like some people had postmarks that they collected. Other people had coins. Other people had antique books, right? Or we had gums in Russia where when you take it, take the wrapper off before you chew on the gum, it had little pictures inside like the famous one was called turbo which had sport cars so you buy gum a piece of gum right you unwrap it and there's a small little picture inside sometimes it would be thundercats or ninja turtles <laughs> and kids would go crazy trying to collect them all so it was that collecting culture which you could categorize and the geek culture mm. so my father took me to that spot once i'm checking out the novelization of this new movie it's coming out jurassic park like okay i'll grab that all right what else is here we're walking around this place and we'll go inside of this little room there's four or five televisions set one has nintendo one has super nintendo one has sega genesis so it's already all of these 8-bit and 16-bit generations are out and i've seen video games before in our at the arcades right like stupid stuff like pac-man or or dig dug that's okay but then I see Mortal Kombat 2 on Super Nintendo. And you, you don't understand that experience. It's impossible to express that experience today because with graphics we have today. But back then, imagine going from Pac-Man to seeing a fully digitized actor. Like, you don't understand. They put an actor in the goddamn game. <laughs> <laughs> and you're looking at this game. It's like, wait, wait, wait. What, what is this game called? And I start asking kids, like, oh, you don't know? This is Mortal Kombat. What, this guy looks like Van Damme. This guy looks like Bruce Lee. You pick up. You're a kid. You, you're sh your eye is sharp, right? Like, what is this game? And because we didn't have access to magazines, we didn't have access to translated games, everything was in English and Japanese. Kids who mastered those early fatalities in the game were the geek culture overlords. They were gods that you worship. Because what you would do is you would sit next to those guys like, hey, man, hey, hey, I want to do that sub-zero fatality. Like, you know how to do it? At first, they would front. They would be like, Haha, I know that fatality. But then if you get cool with those kids, they would write down the fatality on the piece of paper and give it to you. Like, if you want to be friends with me, don't tell anyone. You learn that fatality and just, just keep it hush. And once the kids started experiencing those 16-bit generation games in my small hometown and trading cartridges in school, like, hey, I'll give you my Castlevania. You give me your, like, Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles Lost in Time. Like, uh, uh, we'll trade for a week. That was the beginning of the geek culture for me before I traveled to the U.S. Mm. It's interesting that 
the geek culture there, it seems a lot more accepted and because the stereotype of geek culture is that it's it's kind of a bunch of sweaty nerds who are kind of not interacting with each other but you're you're describing something completely the opposite it's always been like that that's the that's the sigma like which i never understood was like um yeah there's yeah, we we understood what the nerd was by the Western terms because we all grew up with uh, weird science. These two geeky boys, they want the hot girl, but they can't get the hot girl because they're too smart and regular girls want the bad boys. And that's not who they are. But when you come here, my first experience reading comic books was literally right outside my building across the street. There was used to be a comic book shop owned by this... Uh, uh, Chinese guy, Stephen uh, Chang, he was just awesome guy. He introduced me to Magic the Gathering. He opened up a world of anime to me and uh, uh, comic books. Once like you walk inside of a store, that the place feels like a home. Because if the owner... They, they, you have few rare examples where comic book shop owners, they're not with the culture. They just sell the product. So they don't welcome you. There's like, buy and, and see you later. But those who are real, real comic book owners, like owners and fans, it the place always feels like home because other kids are there. You're standing there and talking to them for hours, non-end. How to do that next level in Dragon Ball Z Tenkaichi 2 or how to go to like Grand Theft Auto and where you pick up this particular car. It always brings people together. Like I never was able to parse that, like why people call it isolating when games always brought people together because counter-argument is in terms of gaming culture, we're sort of more divided than we were because with the advent of the internet, you don't gather around the same television in the house and don't talk smack to your boys anymore. When you play those three fighter games, right? It's like, ah, oh, you suck. Are you going to pick that girl, Chun-Li? Oh, I got my Ryu. I got you, man. Part of the fun, right? Yeah. Now is everyone, it, we claim that was like this globalized culture and Sony and Xbox have their conferences every year, see how they're impacted the world in a positive way. Like, People don't talk to each other anymore. You don't see faces. Like, what, what happened? What happened standing in front of the arcade machine and you're like this tall? And I remember there was this guy who was like in his 20s. I'm like 14-year-old here. I live in a part of Manhattan, which was like very Latino. Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Cubans, right? Mostly Dominicans. I'm sitting, it was like 20-year-old Dominican guy. I'm like, we're playing Tekken in arcades. And he's like, sure, you want to play, kid? I'm looking at him like, yeah, I'll kick your ass. <laughs> so, like, I put, like 25 cents. What happened to that? That was the, the epitome of geek culture. Because and, and then you win and then you get your pat on the shoulder. You get your badge of honor. You're accepted in the club, right? I, I'm going to sound like such an old man now. But it's easy to forget how good it was. Mag games, they felt magical. It, it, there's 16 big games where you had to like supply your imagination to fill the gaps and make that double dragon two little pixel be a real character be billy have eyes nose and ears even though the pixels don't clearly now like two i always even you know in my circle of friends my younger brother is huge metal gear solid fan right the popular popular espionage video game and we all talk about how Hideo Kojima just never made the same game again it's like after that original metal gear the limitations of playstation one took them to that place where creatively, narratively, as an artist, where we don't see that anymore. Now you can have all the beautiful graphics in the world, but they, it doesn't have that punch. Mm. 
It's funny, I'm very lucky that I'm going to speak to uh, Tim Lapatino next week. Um, and he wrote a book called The Art of Atari. And it's very much about that. And it's about the the artwork that went, uh, very much about their history as well, but the artwork that went into selling, not only selling the game on the shelf, but also selling the game in your mind. Where you look at the wow. the pixels and you, as you say, it's not just pixels when you look at it. It's all the details that you saw in the artwork. That was the magic and, of it. And, and filled the rest with, like, with your imagination mm. that just wasn't there. I used to be afraid of Castlevania. Mm. It's frightened me. Like those flying little Medusa heads. You just didn't understand what they are. They're frightening because they strike your character and your character dies. And you can't beat the level. You got to start over. And all that frustration compounds. I'm like, it's scary. And uh, about five or six years ago, you know, as I'm working in a comic video game store, I'm pretty much, I know or have played every single game on the shelf across every console, right? And as uh, we're talking, you know, all these games are, are out there. Nintendo Switch was announced. And as Nintendo Switch was announced, handheld console, I tell all my customers, I'm like, guys, pixels are not dead. It's an art form. It looked it looks primitive to you, to you now, but to us, all those Zelda Super Nintendo games, all those wonderful, wonderfully animated characters, they were real, Ninja Turtles, right? It's an art form. Don't disregard it as something as archaic or part of the past. All those first computer PC games in, in RPGs that didn't have any animation, like the Wizardry series, right? Gorgeous, gorgeous arts, because they re recognized, right, they're all students of Gary Gygax of Dungeons and Dragons and realized, okay, now we have the numbers in there, the D&D rule sets. Now we need to supply the visual aspect to be more marketable, to attract more casual audience. Once those pixels kicked in, and to this day, oh my God, when I look at these pixelated 2D games, Knights of the Round, for example, one of them, or Magic Sword or Golden Axe, right? Yeah. Oh, Golden Axe. Um, oh. Golden Axe, right? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I used to argue with my customers. I told them, guys, everything comes back in circles. What was old will become new and cool again. And mark my words, this, this whole archaic style will be excavated and become new again. And lo and behold, the indie part of the gaming industry has picked up so much momentum. And Nintendo Switch, I wish you saw my like plus 100 physical collection games that I have here. I love most that concentrate on indie games. It's new kids are digging it. Again, they're rediscovering it. It's, it's magical. Now it's fully recognized as an art form. It, it, could, it could not stay underground for too long. It had to resurface. Because now on par, you could have your wonderful, wonderful Final Fantasy VII remake, amazing, just staggering graphics, and a game full of heart, full of beautiful music. And against that... You have something that looks like crazy, funny little pixels running around, and that's art too. I'm going to try and do something, you know, podcasty and tie all this together, and let's see how that goes. Do you think it's the same thing as those Soviet-era cinema makers? It's working within the limitations and using those limitations to make the rest of it so much better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to bring up specifically one comparison between the Soviet era filmmaking and uh, Hollywood filmmaking. I just have to get this uh, movie name here very quickly. It's based on actually on a famous American novel. I always forget its name. 
and my father was responsible for um, introducing me to that uh, movie. So the original novel of the Old Kingsman by uh, Robert Penn Warren uh, in the 70s, Russia, Soviet filmmaking experienced a boom of experimental cinema. So, okay, we have this very established form of this epic costume, widescreen, beautiful historical films, or, you know, what, what was canonized as Soviet film. People were now trying to think outside the box and said, how can we innovate and be experimental, be different? So, uh, Russians have made an adaptation of this American classic. So, Old Kingsman, it's about this one politician, senator, who wants to be like uh, a president and all of the shenanigans of political games, of political theater in the United States, making the promises to the hardworking man, building the you know your your team, becoming the part of the elite, negotiating your way to the throne, to the top, abandoning the same very people that you made promises to, all of that juicy stuff what makes up American politics since day one. And my father was telling me, we were here when living in America, he's like, hey, Ben, you want to watch this um, film? I said, Dad, it's probably going to be comical. What, I mean, what, what do these filmmakers, what do these people know about the culture? You have to live in the culture and live and breathe in the culture. It's just like when Hollywood was trying to make a couple of famous, famous uh, uh, Russian stories like War and Peace uh, and adapt them. It's just, it looks almost comical. You appreciate the effort, but come on. He said, can you please just sit down and watch it? And my pops, he's, he knows cinema. I said, okay, all right, I'll see it. Within 15 minutes, I was lost. Like, I couldn't understand why these actors are speaking Russian, because by all accounts, they shouldn't. And honestly, again, it's you could blame it on Ben as being nostalgic. He's trying to prop the cinema that he loves and cherishes. I did not grow up with this movie. I didn't even know its existence. At one point, when I was like a teenager, I completely shunned the cinema that I grew up with. And it was like all Hollywood with me, all Matrix, all these like cool new stuff, right? But then I had to look back and see what makes art what makes the film memorable is it beautiful expensive like production values and cinematography i don't know or is it something a story like you said that you have to work with limitations like british cinema and you keep coming back to back and back and back again because that backstabbing or that character reveal was so powerful in your mind you, you just want to experience that again so i was watching this movie all the kingsmen and i could not believe how they were able to tackle the problem of shooting a movie about America, which could not be filmed in America for obvious reasons. And just the limitations around it, now that I've spent 25 years here in the States, and you know, mind you, I'm still scratching the surface of what America means to me personally and historically. It's such a, such a giant topic. It's such a rich country. But you see like the locales, you see the farmlands that they're showing the frontier America where he's like tries to go around and talk to people. The way that the lead actor is dressed, these elegant, you know, costumes, the way that they show the White House, the senatorial, you know, uh, place in the state that he is in. Man, I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe it. Like it seeps into your pores. I'm like, yeah, this is America. I know, dude. How did you manage this? And I'm pretty sure there are films like, not specifically on Russia, but events that concern Russia, Spielberg's uh, 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 Saving Private Ryan. I have not seen a finer World War II film in America. And it's so like, just it, it, it's you feel like you're there. 
it feels like it represents the times. It feels like it represents the culture. Again, we're not specifically talking about Russian because I can't bring up to mind something that would speak that way. But I'm sure there are films out there. I've, I've seen maybe a, a small portion of them. There's so much movies to watch. But this one went outside of the boundaries of limitation, all the Kingsmen. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So yeah, it, it, to answer your question, it's very representative. What happens in games reflects very much what happened in cinema. Limitations are good. I think we'll, we'll, there's going to be a very interesting um, geek culture experiment that we're about to experience with uh, Amazon's uh, The Lord of the Rings series they're releasing. Uh, I think it will either make it or break it because um, it seems to have all the production values in the world. Uh, but I'm very, very cautious about it. Um, Paul, if you do hear something crazy in the background, please do let me know. It's, it's a, a bit of sirens. sirens. Just to freak people out a little bit. <laughs> they couldn't leave us alone. They just had to... Um, every time Mike and I sit down, <laughs> it's there just to pass the rest. It's like, Hi! Hi, we're from New York. Well, yeah, that's it. To be fair, living in London, and I'm sure you're the same, uh, there gets to a certain point where unless you're consciously thinking about it, it's just yeah. it's just part of your background noise and you kind of ignore it. <laughs> Enjoy, guys. Relish in it as we continue our discussion. Actually, part of this noise is what is happening with Amazon's Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you follow the social media or YouTube, these people are picking it apart, man. We just got a 30-second or one-minute trailer, and people are like, ah, you know, all this diversity for its own sake, with all this wokeness, blah, 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 blah. You know, people have not experienced it yet. But I'll tell you why I am very, very cautious about the show. Uh, what Peter Jackson has accomplished is a very rare feat. It's a very rare occasion, which I don't believe George Lucas was able to do with his own Star Wars series. And that is George Lucas, as Mark Hamill has put, caught the lighting in the bottle with the original trilogy. And it's the same feat was never accomplished again. Not with prequels, not with sequels. Look, I, I adore and fancy all Star Wars fans who grew up with prequels and it's part of their childhood and they love it. There's no reason you shouldn't. If those movies mean the world to you, by all means, that's not what we're discussing here. What we're discussing is... Most people that I talk to who have lived through all of Star Wars since its origins will tell you that the originals are the shiznit. They are the Star Wars. And then everything else trickles from there. I, I, I don't believe George was ever able to repeat that magic. Not in books that I've read, not in all the movies, not in all the shows. It's just nothing feels the same as the original trilogy. And the only other trilogy in geek culture, I should say three trilogies, that had the same cultural impact on globally, not just in the United States, was for 2000s, it was The Lord of the Rings. It's undeniable. Star Wars prequel trilogy is out of the conversation here. If anything, Star Wars prequels were fans were occupying themselves with bickering over it and cutting each other's throats of how good or how good, bad it is. Lord of the Rings were unanimously the, the only reaction was like, <gasps> that's the only reaction that I don't want to hear it. And then 2010, right? Like that ballparking that decade is Chris Nolan's Batman trilogy. Mm. Undeniable. 
yeah, you had your comic book uh, uh, minority. You're like, it's not like in the comic book. You're supposed to. The ear size is this length. But, you know, uh, Bruce Wayne never said that. It's, you know, people who are splitting air, uh, hairs. They want their... Uh, they, they want their comics to be word for word adapted to screen, which I never understood that sentiment. Then you had Chris Nolan. And post-Chris Nolan, I would say that maybe significant, significantly less uh, impact, but still uh, impact nonetheless, is the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Undeniable storytelling. Just hits you right there, stands above the competition. Like in, in the sci-fi genre, you're looking at like, yeah, this is just like uniformly awesome um we're now once again on the precipice of something that is people have a lot of expectations of especially the nerd culture especially look we are always and will be the minority the all of these uh rating system websites like rotten tomatoes all the social media combined twitter instagram facebook tiktok in comparison to average movie goers and people who pay admission price for the tickets, we will always will be minority who are the loudest, who feel that we represent the major vote because we care the most. We're not like those people. It's people banding together, getting tribal. It's like we care the most. And I understand all that passion that goes into The Lord of the Rings. But here is one thing with the Amazon that could either make it or break it, and it's the budget. And the argument is to be made is... That Hollywood bravado, circling back to what we said earlier, that larger-than-life Hollywood persona of making films that look the most eye candy, is it what draws geek culture, or is it something that you pick apart in Lord of uh, in the uh, uh, Game of Thrones non-end, and you just can't get over what you did, what they did to your boy Viper? So it's it's the visuals of Avatar versus to this one Viper character and how masterfully George Martin wrote him in and what happens to that character. It's, you start weighing the two. It, it, I'm very curious to see where Amazon was, will take us with this series because after seeing the first two episodes of The Wheel of Time, I just I, 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 I can't understand how that was green-lighted as a show in general. Like, I, it's it's just... It doesn't look finished. Like, it's... Okay, it's concept on screen. Like, who's making this? Where's the final film? Like, am I only going to see scraps of it? Like, it just doesn't feel like anything resembling storytelling. Um, and that's Amazon, too. And then, of course, big name. It could be an entirely different set of creatives working on this, but Amazon is attached, right? Bezos himself said, I want my version of Lord of the Rings, and I'm going to pay X amount of... What, the, the, the entire show, I think... The first season is like $400 million, something like that. Just obscene amount of money. It will be, I think, a very cool stress test for us, the geek culture, to say, what are we paying attention to here? Are we paying attention to, A, visuals? That's what sells storytelling to us. Are we paying attention, B, to all the controversy? And, and you know, drawing the line in the sand of real fans versus non-real fans. Is that what, what geek culture is all about? Or is it going to be C and us saying, oh, man, look what they did with the dwarves here. She's not what she's, you would expect. She's from a different, diverse ethnicity, but they're taking her here story-wise. And by the way, she's a brand new character. And they're being playful here. They're experimenting with the source material by recognizing what the original is, but then putting their own vo creative voice on it. Yeah, yeah, I can accept that. What is it going to be out of these three? The visuals, 
the bickering or people relishing in something that tries to push the boundaries of what is Lord of the Rings. Is this era we're in, is it the greatest era possibly for geek culture or is it possibly kind of the un untying of geek culture as we know it? It's both. It's um, as, as older I grow, I, I begin to look at literally everything that's around me as a, a continuous phenomenon, a, a stream. Nothing is static in life. Not geek culture, not Batman's, because when somebody walks inside of a comic book store, I want, I want real Batman story. None of this Chris Nolan crap. My question always was, well, which version of the real Batman? You have Jack, uh, 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 Jack Kirby version. You had the the uh, uh, Mark Miller version. Yeah, uh, Frank Miller was it? Mark, I always confuse the two. Uh, from Jim Lee, it's which version are you talking about? Because the character evolves, it changes. His character origin story was not there. Daddy and mommy being killed, and he was he's just a detective story. And it, it goes and travels, and so is everything with the geek culture. So to answer your question, is this the best or the worst time? My answer is it's evolving and it's both because for somebody like me who embraces physical game collection, I don't like buying digital games because I want a sense of ownership. I love the beautiful artwork. I want a little booklet inside. I want the, all the extra crap that comes with it just because I want to. There's no explanation to it. I want to. I want to put that wonderful Final Fantasy VIII disc in the you know, protective sleeve and just sit there on my shelf. There's room for it today for me. So you can't say that it's unraveling, it's bad, it's going downhill. I have all the reasons in the world and all the possibility in the world to get as many physical games as I can stomach. Um, well, I don't like playing online games. I want to play by myself. Yeah, go load up like Elden Ring that just came out and you could play both versions. The game literally came out yesterday. You want to play with friends? Kick yourself and, and you know, Knock yourself out and go and do it. You want to play solo? You can still... We have more choices than ever to experience geek culture than we ever had before. Are you tired of live-action shows? Go watch Darkane. Uh, you think that Disney is exploiting and milking Star Wars and now there's too much of Star Wars? I'm like, huh? Wh what? What? Back in 2007, uh, 6 or 7, when the uh, third uh, episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, was over, we didn't even think we we're going to get any more Star Wars. That was the biggest fear, not having more of the stuff that we love. Now that we have it, you still bitching? You know what's the easiest thing to do? Push that button, unplug, go play soccer or something. Go to a museum. You, We have more choices and possibilities than ever to enjoy these things around us. With that comes the negative aspect of things being diluted. Quality coming down. Yes, there's an argument to be made if, if these are the kind of movies that we're willing to embrace and accept, which are not on par with what came before, then um, maybe we are part of, of dismantling this, the quality of this culture. But here's the challenge. When we go back, right, and we start studying games, or cinema, or heavy metal. I'm a metalhead. That's also underground culture. It's also geek culture. Um, and I say, well, in the 80s, 
they had the best Bay Area thrash metal. Not all these bands are garbage. They're trying to just to repeat the same magic again. It's not working. Well, hold on a second. They had albums coming out and striking gold, not one after the other, not consequently, because greatness takes time. It takes the right special alchemic process and the right people coming at the right time, making the right impact. Metallica and Justice for All. It's uh, an album that is forever etched into the American culture because at the time it came out, because of the kind of caliber of talent that it brought, the lyrical content, the everything, it's, in, it's inseparable. Same with cinema. When you say, well, golden age Hollywood, 30s and 40s is where it's at, man. After, you know, the, the uh, Twilight Zone, Americans just don't know how to make shows anymore. Well, hold on a second. Um, it's easy for me, a modern kid, to say that because now we have a library of great films, right? But they took time to develop. If you go back in time and you watch the American classic Ben-Hur, 1959, right next to that, and to me, this movie stands the test of time because it, I believe if something is good, if something is well-made, it's timeless. There's no such thing as archaic, aging, not good anymore. A powerful story, take Bible, for example. People still read it to this day. And it's not just their belief systems. It's powerful storytelling, right? Um, so you, you, you ask the question then, well, uh, 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 when, when the Ben Hur show uh, movie came out, ask yourself a question. How many movies of that time were circling around it like sharks, were trying to replicate the same magic of the film, and we're just plain dookie, man? They were garbage. <laughs> Look at so many costume Hollywood movies with... All these women that are trying to portray characters from an entirely different culture, not even on that front, just the, the scripts suck. The action sequences, like rubber swords doing this. I'm like, what is this crap? You know what I mean? It's, it's a great thing takes time to develop. Paul, I just want to ask you this question. When you look at things which were great from a particular period of time, do you have the notion that, oh man, those are just representative of that particular time? That was the moment, but now it's not here anymore. Or do you feel that like, hey, let me contextualize things. And, and perhaps they were separated by ponds of, of mediocrity in between. You always look back with rose-tinted glasses, don't you? You look back and you see, mm. you see the wonderful things. Like, you know, if I looked back at what I did last week, I'd probably give you, you know, the main beats of the best and the worst because that's what stick in, yeah. sticks in your mind and give it a month's time. And I look back and I'll probably only remember the best. And I think media is the same. You know, we look back yeah. and we see the greatness because that's what defined us. And sometimes the greatness is greatness in its rubbishness. <laughs> like how many films people say, Oh, it's so rubbish, but it's great. And it defined my childhood. But other right. people wouldn't even remember it because arguably it was rubbish. Do you have a movie like that? Um, I probably I like, I used to love um, a film called The Relic. It's arguably rubbish, but it's great. <laughs> the Relic. Nineteen ninety-seven. I'm seeing one here. Vaguely vaguely like brings up memories 1996 yeah so they bring back some relic into a museum and 
it bring, mm. basically brings a monster with it. Um, mm. Arguably, it's a naff film. But I looked back at it because it, I had it, I randomly had it on VHS and I watched it right. more times than I probably should have, especially because I was so young. Um, so I look at, back at it and say, that's a great film. And I remember it, but many people wouldn't because arguably it's rubbish. <laughs> Well, with us, it's uh, my, my Russian friends and I, Commando, Schwarzenegger. Mm. Bullets don't touch that, man. But it doesn't matter. Look, look at the mountain of muscles. Look at the hot girl next to him. Look at the beautiful Pacific, the, uh, you know, the Caribbean music playing in the background throughout the whole music. The stupid one-liners. It's like, it's greatness. How dare you say that movie is not great, right? That's another huge element that we didn't touch upon. It's so much of what is great exists outside of professional critic review because professional critic review is not an absolute. It's not 100% informed. It may come from an informed perspective. A person may have pursued film studies or writing studies. He comes from an informed place where he may know a little bit more about methodology of storytelling and filmmaking, which is non-arguably is the effective way of shoot cinema because you could clearly tell a difference between a kid shooting his Star Wars fan flick film versus what's on screen. It takes skill. There's a skill component to it. There is the, there is a mechanical aspect of it, which I don't think can be debated. If you have an action scene and the camera is shaking all over like this, nobody's going to like it because you want to follow what is happening on the screen. That's objective. That has nothing to do with how we feel about it. But then so much of that very same film depends on wh what we love about it, what it brings into our family, fondest childhood memories, our family rituals, the stuff that we do. And then when discourse comes to Star Wars, I'm not a big fan of Star Wars prequels. I just don't think they're very well-made movies. They're not horrible, but they're not great. But... And I used to be, in my early 20s, like this very jaded person, very protective and tribal over my original trilogy and disliking this trilogy over here. But then, of course, you grow, you learn retrospect, you learn that opinions and feelings and emotions and people exist outside of your little small world. Grow up. Look around you. Appreciate what people, how they revere this particular trilogy. And I just wanted to say that it's such a huge component of the the mechanical aspect the 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 craft of filmmaking versus how it makes you feel i'm pretty sure the kids growing up who are going to watch these wheel of time show which i i felt was incomprehensible to me and perhaps it may, may serve as a trampoline to somebody to watch and get excited about fantasy genre and discover lord of the rings it's same with music some teenage bands like pod all these like you know, a total request live MTV, which are non-existent anymore, that nobody remembers for anything. But they had the environment where they served as a trampoline for younger 13-year-olds. So like, yeah, heavy metal, you know, rock music. And they start there, and that music had the right to exist. It had the right to have its audience, and it pleased a lot of young people. And they grew up, and it's like, now I know what Metallica is. Who's to argue which one is greater? That was my childhood. I don't care about Metallica. I care about P.O.D. It's, it's also a huge, huge part of uh, being uh, in the nerd culture and understanding that and, and being compassionate to people who don't feel the same way you do. Basically, I think what the summary of what you're saying is 
to kind of try things. So to sum up, what is the benefit of geek culture? What has been the benefit to you? And what do you think the benefit is to the world in general that geek culture brings? To say to people, give these things a try. It means the world to me. It's it's brings people together. It's um, communication. It's people sharing in. It's something wonderful. It's I'm listening to a lot of podcasts where modern, you know, psychiatrists and people who study like the social consciousness. They talk about how we have replaced our idols. We have replaced our biological need to worship something that is greater than ourselves. Right, the first cultures of the world have evolved to worship the sun. Why? Because it nourished them and gave them life. And now a lot of younger generation who are always throughout history, the new generation always becomes disillusioned with, you know, a religious or authoritative voice or people who are telling them how to live their lives. And they say, well, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of this religion or this cult that brings me away from my friends. I'm Muslim, you're Jew, he is a Buddhist, we can all be friends, we can love one each other. And when your religion segregates you, you move away from it. Because I I personally believe in the goodness of people. I believe that we're all developed to grow together. We are communal creatures. And that's what geek culture does. It brings us all together. It makes us sharing in a spiritual experience. Whether you believe in gods or not, or human soul or not, there's still the experience is spiritual in a way that it ties us all together. Who are Supermans and Batmans and Wonder Womans? They're Greek gods reincarnate. They are the Nordic mythology. They are, they are the basic human necessity of sitting by the campfire and our elder telling us a story to teach us how to be a responsible member of the society, how to pick up the spear and go out there and hunt and bring back and participate. That's that's what gig culture does. It makes us all participate. Let's say I'm from somewhere from India and I heard an Iron Maiden song, The Trooper. What is it about? What's the content here? Oh, and, and oh, you're from Russia? That's how you see this song? But it was created by this band in Britain. Everything begins to make sense. If you felt isolated and turned away from something and secluded, and you were made to believe that this group of people is not like you, they're different. You're supposed to stay here with us. Don't mind those people, stay with us. I will always fight anyone who tries to portray gay culture as something that's isolationist or or non-social. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Geek culture is, by definition, a social phenomenon. We all celebrate it. A Jewish actress from Israel portrays a Greek goddess speaking English, and she comes out of Hollywood, and somebody sees it in Sri Lanka. That's beautiful. What is more beautiful than that? So that's what geek culture is. It, 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 It ties us all together. You can find Ben on YouTube, youtube.com slash Star Wars Timeline, and his Facebook group full of like-minded individuals is facebook.com slash groups slash Star Wars Timeline. 
if you'd like to follow Ben on Twitter, you can do so at SWT underscore channel, where he talks about all of his geeky interests. As always, thank you for listening. You can contact the show at Era of Geek on social media or head to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. If you like the show, please do leave a review and tell your friends. You can also leave a review on podchaser.com.